And I thought, well, maybe I should just quietly go along. Maybe I should sit there and not go along and say nothing. And then not long ago, I saw the second episode of the John Adams miniseries about independence and how um, the um, Continental Congress finally got to the point where they did the Declaration of Independence. But at one point... You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting this week. And with me in the legislative building are Lauren Horsch, Will Doran, Colin Campbell, and Andy Spey. Uh, we had a busy week at the legislature, including a budget vote, including a budget veto, and uh, the beginnings of an override that will probably finish up next week, and a voter ID constitutional amendment, uh, along with a whole lot of other things, uh, a lot of other bills on education, hog farming. Uh, and prison violence. Um, but let's start with voter ID. Colin, uh, the constitutional amendment came out today uh, and it was sponsored by House Speaker Tim Moore. And basically, it doesn't give a whole lot, uh, it doesn't say a whole lot about what it would do. It would require voter ID in uh, elections, and that's about it. Yeah, so the uh, voters in November would get to decide uh, do they support a photo ID requirement um, for people to present in order to vote? But that's really all the language says and all the language in this bill that was uh, introduced says so this pretty much allows the legislature under the way it's written to come back if this amendment passes in November um, and figure out the exact laws and requirements surrounding that. So uh, photo ID sounds straightforward, but there's a lot of different types of photo ID. Do you, does it have to be a driver's license issued by the DMV? Could it be a college ID? These are all uh, elements of the discussion that came up the last time North Carolina uh, tried to do a voter ID requirement. Um, and so basically the legislators are saying, uh, if you support voter ID, come out and vote for this, but uh, we won't give you really the details of our plan for how voter ID will work in practice until uh, this has already passed. I mean, ultimately what this is, along with probably uh, other constitutional amendments that uh, haven't rolled out yet but have been uh, in talks, are the goal is to uh, get Republicans a little bit more energized about this November's election. There's a worry among the GOP uh, that because of the you know so-called blue wave coming, that Republicans won't be turning out in uh, nearly the numbers that they turned out in 2016 and, and other election years. Uh, and so certainly voter ID, which has a pretty strong support uh, among conservatives, uh, would be something to, to drive them out. Um, we still don't know for sure if this is going to be paired with other constitutional amendments. Uh, there's been talk uh, that uh, legislators are seriously considering amendments on uh, the right to hunt and fish, which is very much a feel-good amendment, uh, to put that into the state constitution, um, and then another one capping the income tax rate more or less at the current level it's at, uh, which would per- put strings on future legislatures, uh, particularly if the Democrats were to come back in charge and uh, we're looking at making some tax changes uh, to keeping the rate at, at what it is now. So we could see those come out in the coming weeks. But uh, as of now, uh, this is the one that's uh, that's been filed uh, in this short session so far. And, of course, the reason we're having this conversation is because a court, a federal appeals court, struck down uh, the voter ID law some time ago, and uh, the Supreme Court refused to uh, save it. Uh, and part of the reasoning f- from the federal courts was that it did a whole lot of other things besides just voter ID, it had to do with voting hours and voting, look whether you could vote at a precinct that wasn't yours and things like that. 
And um, any idea whether just a plain old voter ID, uh, photo ID bill would, uh, you know, would run into any trouble in the courts? Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to t- say without being a legal expert, but I think that's certainly the idea behind this bill being as simple as it is, is uh, legislators have basically told me, you know, they, they think that the way they read the rulings, um, the objection wasn't really so much the photo ID requirement. Of course, there are, are other states that do have active photo ID requirements, but it was, you know, that there was a lot other baked into that bill uh, and the whole thing got struck down. So their hope is that by doing a very clean bill uh, that just says photo ID and doesn't have really anything else rolled into it, uh, that they're more likely to, to pass the courts. Plus, having it in the Constitution uh, with the support of voters um, would give them perhaps a little bit more uh, leverage with the courts in, in proving that this is something that the people do support and, and want to be part of the state Constitution. Well, and, you know, Colin, you mentioned, you know, this m- maybe being aimed at, you know, turning out uh, Republicans in the midterms. I-, I wonder if it could almost backfire because of, you know, we were just saying this got overturned for being unconstitutional, specifically for being unconstitutionally targeted at disenfranchising black voters is what the court found that it surgically targeted African-Americans. And so you wonder, you know, if, you know, if that's what voter ID is associated with in the minds of a lot of Democratic and African-American voters in North Carolina, if they see that this is on the ballot again, they know that it was already overturned once. Uh, you know, is that maybe even going to drive Democratic turnout? Yeah, and I would imagine the Democratic Party would probably push this as an issue to uh, help get their supporters to the polls and, and people who uh, do uh, oppose voter ID. And as the uh, press release we got from the House Speaker's Office today uh, listed some polling results that found, uh, I think, what looked like fairly overwhelming support for a photo ID requirement. I forget exactly which pollster they were using for that. Uh, I'm sure there's differing numbers depending on uh, who you talk to and, and how you word the question, but that's certainly a, uh, something for them to consider. I mean, I think it is worth noting, too, if if the legislature gets to a point where you don't have super majorities for the Republican Party, this would essentially be the last year they could do that because if they come back next year and they have a simple majority in the House or Senate or both, um, they won't have, I think it's the two-thirds uh, or three-fifths majority in order to um, put a constitutional amendment on the ballot um, because you'd have to get Democrats on board with that. This year, they don't have to worry about that. Democrats can can vote against this uh, bill and any other constitutional amendments, and it's not probably not going to make a difference. The other big news this week was uh, the budget nearing completion. Uh, Will Cooper veto, Governor Roy Cooper vetoed uh, the budget, and but we're already starting to see uh, override votes uh, less than a day later, and uh, we could see it, uh, the final one, next week. Um, so what did Cooper say about why he vetoed the bill? Well, I don't think he was under any delusions that his veto would ever hold up. Uh, he knows that Republicans have more than enough votes to override it. Um, but he said that uh, he believes it's the right thing to do, and he's all, you know he wants to do that uh, regardless of you know knowing that it's kind of a, a moot point. But he said basically the reason why he thinks it's the right thing to do is that he doesn't believe the budget spent enough on education. Uh, He had proposed uh, larger teacher salary raises than the legislature gave, uh, not by too much. The legislature gave around 6.5%, and Cooper's budget proposed around an 8% average raise. Um, And then there were also some other issues. He had proposed more money for the UNC system, um, more money for uh, really a a lot of different parts of state government, um, the environment. uh, But really the environment and education have been the things that uh, Cooper has uh, focused on and expressed his disappointment with. Uh, He also believed that 
the legislature should have uh, frozen some tax cuts that are set to go into place this coming year. Uh, we already have uh, basically one of the lowest corporate income tax rates in the country. Um, a few states have a 0% rate, so we don't have that, but we have a pretty small rate, and it's going to lower again next year. And Cooper said basically, well, you know, since we already have such a low rate, and because the federal government just passed a massive corporate income tax a few months ago, we should hold off on that here. You know, most of the companies that are going to benefit from that aren't even based in North Carolina anyways, and so we need to you know, take that money and, and reinvest it in, in other things. I, I had heard from, uh, you know, so, uh, a local union of uh, public employees that that corporate tax rate, if the legislature had gone with Cooper's plan, would have uh, yielded around $900 million extra for the state, and they were arguing that that, that should have been used for state employees. Um, obviously, the legislature did also uh, make a pretty uh, substantial investment in the state workforce, uh, raising the minimum wage up to $15 an hour for most of the, the full-time workers in the state. And I've heard that we might actually be the first state in the country to have done that. Uh, need to do just a little bit more research on that, but uh, that's what I've been told by some of the, the advocates here that no other state has done that before. Um, so that's pretty major, obviously, um, and, you know, some some other big raises. And Cooper actually, in his uh, press conference announcing the veto Wednesday, took a little bit of credit for some of those big state employee raises that we saw in the legislature's budget. He said that, well, the only reason they're even in the legislature's budget is because he proposed similar raises first. And so then the Republicans in the legislature felt pressured to kind of catch up with where he had been. And obviously, there's no way of knowing if that's true or not, but uh, he's taking credit for it. We've had another week, week and a half to look at the budget. Uh, would you guys uh, find anything else in there that's uh, that's of interest that people would want to know about? Anything that stands out to you, Will? Well, there's a lot of pork in there. Um, I think we've talked about that previously. Uh, uh, several of us are looking into some specific projects. Uh, you know, some, some places only get a little bit of money, some places get millions of dollars, but it just so happens, you know, to often kind of find its way to the, the hometowns and the home counties of the people in charge of writing the budget. You don't um, say. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at the, um, you know, the, we read, I think Will has talked on this here before and written about the uh, uh, faith-based charities that are getting stuff. A lot of those are in districts uh, led by key budget writers and key leaderships, but also the uh, the towns that get money. You know, the, the state has a lot of programs to help less well-off towns through an application project process, but uh, in the uh, earmarked section of the budget, there's money directed to specific towns, and the biggest amounts go to uh, I think there's half a million dollars uh, each to the towns of Eden and Dunn. Eden, of course, home to Senate Leader Phil Berger, and Dunn is home of House Rules Chairman uh, David Lewis. And same goes for fire departments. Uh, there's a pretty big grant to a volunteer fire department in a place called Lawndale, North Carolina, which I had to look up on a map, but uh, turns out it's in Tim Moore's district, the House Speaker. So uh, there's a lot of those little things uh, that you Tim Moore's district got a lot of money. Yeah, I think because he, and this has happened several budget cycles, he, he really supports the American Legion World Series, which I think takes place in Shelby. So this was yet another year in which that organization got some money in the budget. Yeah, yeah, the Little League game got uh, half a million dollars in this year's budget. And yeah, other. I assume this is a big <laughs> deal. It's probably the, the nicest Little League game in the country by this point. Um, and Colin, you uh, wrote a little bit today about uh, whether or not there's a deficit in Governor Cooper's budget. This is something that Republicans have been saying. They put it out again in their uh, statement about overriding in the Senate the uh, veto 
today. Um, so is there a deficit? Yeah, it depends uh, which source you use. So uh, there, there's basically two entities that deal with budgeting from ostensibly a nonpartisan sort of scientific standpoint. One is the Office of State Budget and Management, which is responsible for helping get together the governor's budget that's appointed by uh, the governor's office. Uh, and then you have over here at the legislature, the Fiscal Research Division, uh, which does a lot of fiscal analysis work for legislators. Uh, so if you look at the fiscal research report that was uh, put out this week uh, at the request of some of the uh, Republicans in leadership, uh, that's showing nearly a half uh, billion dollar deficit in the following fiscal year. Um, you know, the governor is required to submit a balanced budget for the fiscal year addressed by his budget, in which, which case uh, it is balanced for uh, 2018 through 2019. It's when you get to 2019 and 2020 that there's concern that if, uh, if the governor's budget had passed as written uh, and all those provisions had taken effect, uh, you'd get to next year and you'd be looking at potentially a, about a half uh, billion dollar deficit. Um, the projections from Office of State Budget and Management, however, are different. Those are showing uh, a relatively small surplus, but at least some money that they uh, could hypothetically have to, to play around with had that uh, budget passed and we were looking at the 2019-2020 budget. So uh, a lot of rhetoric back and forth. Um, I will note the, the governor during his press conference on Wednesday uh, when he announced he was vetoing the budget, uh, defended that his budget says it does not create a, a, a deficit. Uh, he didn't get into specifics while he was pressed by me and I think three or four other reporters who were trying to get details on that. He did go on the offensive and say that he thought as a result of the corporate tax cuts, uh, the Republicans' budget would create a future deficit. Now, I've asked OSBM uh, a couple of times if they could provide some backup to that statement, some numbers that show uh, what kind of deficit we're talking about in future years and, and when that deficit would occur uh, under the Republican tax cuts. Uh, they did not respond to me on that front. Well, one place where Cooper wants to spend more money and put more money in his budget is for school supplies, Andy. And um, so he's he's made this a big issue. He's talked a lot about how he doesn't feel like there's enough education funding, and uh, one of those areas is school supplies. So he made a claim uh, in a tweet that you checked uh, and said that all the Republicans' uh, budget money goes, almost all of it goes to one uh, district. Uh, so almost all of the school supplies funding goes to one district. So uh, what did you find out when you checked that? Right. So he tweeted, and we need to emphasize the font in this tweet. It says one in big letters, and then it says legislative Republicans' district gets almost all the school supply funding. Hashtag backroom budget. Uh, we found that when we asked uh, Cooper's people about this claim, they said that uh, this budget adjustment uh, mostly gives new funding to uh, Senator Tart's district. What was his first name? Jeff? Jeff Tart. And uh, that money was going to go toward Donors Choose. And Donors Choose was instructed to give $200,000 to about 35 different yeah. Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools. And uh, they turned around and said, no, thank you. We want no part of this. But that, that's an aside. So that's what Cooper was referring to, or what the tweet was referring to. But it leaves out important context, uh, which is that there's still $47 million in the base budget, which was, you know, they had voted on last year for school supply funding. That goes to every school district in the state. And so, but, you know, if you don't know that, if you're just a regular Joe, uh, and see this tweet, um, you might think, oh, no, my, my little Sally's not going to have new markers at school. 
and uh, then you might think, you know, oh, I'm going to vote my so-and-so out. But uh, so we gave that a mostly false. Okay. And we did see that there has been uh, some major cuts over the years in uh, school, school supply funding, right? That's right. Dating back to about uh, 2010 is when uh, it went from about the school supply budget, at least the line item, was $90 million thereabouts. And um, it dropped a lot. And in the last couple years, it's been creeping back up, but it's still nowhere near where it was uh, around that, you know, a, a decade ago. So, um, and that's what Cooper keeps, you know, uh, this is his bread and butter campaigning on. He goes to schools all the time. He has school supply drives. He says teachers use their own personal money on uh, school supplies. And he's right about um, about teachers using their own money. Um, and so... Uh, this is something we hear a lot uh, from him about. Uh, one kind of school supplies that we might be seeing uh, in schools coming up is a sign that says, In God We Trust. Uh, and the state is poised to give about, what, $25,000, I think, uh, to schools to yes, uh, provide those signs. Um, well, why are they going to put these signs up? Well, it's part of a national push that's being led by some Christian family groups um, to to do this legislation, to get signs with the phrase, In God We Trust, into schools. Um, and uh, in North Carolina, it's being led by uh, Representative Burt Jones, um, and uh, he says that this isn't really about religion, it's more about patriotism because that's the national motto. Um, but you have groups like the ACLU who say, well, no, that's very clearly about religion, saying in God we trust. And, you know, what if a kid, you know, doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in the Christian God? Then that kid is going to go to school and feel like a second-class citizen or feel left out, feel unwanted. And, you know, that, and that also, you know, should schools even be doing this? Um, but regardless of the complaints by the ACLU and by some of the Democratic legislators. This is moving ahead. It looks like it's probably poised to, to pass. Um, and it's got, yeah, like you said, Jordan, $25,000 in it. Um, I ran the numbers on it. Uh, there's around, there's a, there's a little over 2,000 schools in the state. And so the $25,000 is just going to go to the state Department of Education to divvy up, and so if every school gets an equal amount of money to put these signs up, they're going to get a little under twelve dollars. And you know, anyone who's ever tried to buy a, you know, a plaque or anything like that before knows that you know it's going to be really, small, right? Yeah, <laughs> it'll be like a, a postcard size. But the the law says it has to be prominently displayed in a major part of campus. You know, so like the the front lobby or the cafeteria or something like that. Um, so now we're hearing that it might just uh, be, like, encouraging schools to have this become, like, a student art project that the students do and that they can just get the money for, like, cardboard paper to make a bulletin board or something like that. Um, and we're also going to put up uh, state signs uh, or signs in, in all the schools uh, that say to be rather than to seem, uh, which is the English translation of the Latin motto of the state, which is essay quam fideri. Um, and they've amended the bill now so that they're going to put both the English and the Latin up. Right. I see. So there was there was a big was... debate um, 
in the legislature. For Latin today, fans uh, out there about, listening. Uh, well, I'm a Latin fan. I I did uh, seven years of Latin. <laughs> why is this? Why does this not not surprise me at all? So I I was personally disappointed uh, that we were originally just going to do the English translation. Although being a good reporter, I never let any of that uh, yeah. seep into my reporting. Uh, but I am very glad that they are now uh, including the Latin as well. Uh, I'm very pro. Latin now education. the truth the truth can be told about your pro latin bias. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's that bill and, uh, um, Lauren, another thing that's moving through the legislature is uh, uh, something that might have an effect on the various lawsuits against hog farms. Um, so uh, there's there was recently a judgment uh, against Smithfield for uh, on behalf of neighbors who complain about smells and other nuisances coming out of hog farms. And um, in fact, another trial is underway right now uh, related to the lawsuits against hog farms. So um, we haven't seen the last of, uh, of that. So what are lawmakers doing? Well, right now, lawmakers are looking to update some of those nuisance laws that could potentially impact any new lawsuits, or as some Democrats say, it could impact the current lawsuits moving forward. So what's going on really is uh, we have the NC Farm Act of 2018. So this is really an agriculture omnibus bill, which has just a bunch of little things thrown in there. Um, there's some provisions about, you know, um, using cloned industrial hemp seeds and selling merchandise at the state fair. So it's really just a grab bag. But there's a couple big provisions in there that would change how, you know, we kind of define nuisances. So I forget what it currently is, but under this bill, um, a, a hog farm or any other farm would be able to avoid some of these nuisance lawsuits if they're, if the practices they use are you know accepted in the industry so a lot of those accepted things in the industry include what what some people refer to as hog lagoons which is basically just these open air areas where they contain all the like fecal matter and hog urine and so that's where a lot of these smells come from um so under this under this provision that's that's an accepted use so you know we might not see nuisance lawsuits because of that um and other things would change including like um, they wouldn't be considered a nuisance if um, there was like neglect or mismanagement, um, all sorts of just things like that. And it's really troubling a lot of the environmental um, lobbyists in the building or advocacy groups too, um, because they really see that this is attack on those neighbors that are suing um, because a lot of them do have these foul, wretched smells. And if you've ever, I, I mean, I lived in Iowa and Minnesota for how many years? And so I would remember driving through just hog farms and you hit it immediately. You know where you are. Um, so these are really strong smells that the neighbors have to deal with and there are some health risks that come with that. Um, so advocates for these families are really worried and uh, Senator Brent Jackson, who's a Republican from Sampson County, is the one who's really championing this bill and he's worked a lot for not just this bill, but a lot of the previous Farm Acts. It's, it's almost an annual bill at this point. Um, and on the floor today, there was a lot of discussion about these lawsuits, and he got incredibly emotional. And I've, I've never seen this man emotional, and I was not up on the floor, so I couldn't physically see, you know, his body language or whatnot. But I could just hear through, the, through you know, the recording we have, um, you know, he, he was upset with these 
the courts and the lawsuits saying that the courts don't know how to interpret the general statutes and they're obviously not able to understand what we're doing so we need to keep clarifying and updating these nuisance laws because these are hurting the farmers who are often you know two three four hog farms that sort of thing um but smithfield obviously not a two three or four hog operation they have thousands of hogs so it's it's just interesting to see the talking points from each you know point of view because as a senator Lowe, who's a democrat from forsyth county he, he he was really adamant of the fact that he supports the farmers he supports the businesses you know he even went as far as saying he told jackson the other day that he eats you know bacon two to three times a week um i mean i love bacon too but i'm not going to admit how many times i eat it a week um <laughs> But he, but Lowe's concern is for the people, the people who are living next to these hog farms. So the debate got very contentious, and it only passed its second reading. So there is still, it's only gotten tentative approval in the Senate. Um, it'll go for its third reading, its last vote. I do believe on Monday. I haven't seen the Senate calendar, and then it goes straight to the House. And there's already a committee meeting set up to hear this bill. So it's been fast tracked pretty well. Barbecue and bacon are. Uh big emotional subjects Barbecue, in North bacon Carolina. bacon, and basketball. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, one uh, food on the other end of uh, the spectrum from bacon and barbecue um, is almond milk. And as we learned this week... Um, the, You're really going to make me talk about The this, legislature Jordan. has it in for almond milk. I was going to save milk. this for the well, headliner. Can you explain what is milk? Okay, so... I ruined your headliner. Oh, no. It's fine. I just really want to hear about this almond so, milk controversy. So, I don't know if any of y'all... Have any of y'all in this room milked a cow before? Uh, no. That's a personal question. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not easy to milk a cow by hand, first off. Um, so what's going on in the farm bill is there's a provision that would require uh, plant-based milk, so your soy milk, your almond milk, your sunflower milk, etc. If you're If you're real crunchy, you know what all these are. Um, so any of these plant-based milks would no longer be able to be labeled as milk. They would instead have to be like soy beverage or almond beverage, and that's because... Um, the FDA has some ruling that milk can only be from a mammal and a lot of times specifically a hooved mammal. So we're talking cows, goat milk, buffalo milk. Um, so that became a really big debate um, because first people thought we were banning almond milk. No, we are not banning almond milk. We are banning the label of milk on the almond beverage. Um, so that became a very long discussion of what really is milk, what happens to coconut milk, and all sorts of stuff like this. And so like, apparently some legislators have a perception that people don't really understand what almond milk is. Well, and you, yes. So Troxler, uh, commission, uh, Agriculture Commissioner Steve Troxler actually said that he'd been hearing that consumers were confused about what these drinks actually were. And because they're oftentimes sold in the in the dairy aisle – that, you know, they think it's almond-flavored milk or it's part milk, part soy milk or something like that. And Senator uh, Tom McKinnis actually got up, well, not got up, he was sitting in his chair during this committee meeting, meeting and he goes, I'm a confused consumer. I don't know what these are. I'd bet my car that it was almond-flavored milk, that sort of thing. So it's like... The, Consumers do get confused. I've never been confused personally, but I'm also from a dairy state. Like, I've watched people carve butter. It's what it is. So it, I, it's become, like, this big. We have I a butter statue at the Iowa State Fair, right? A uh, butter cow, oh, first butter off. Butter cow. Well, yeah. Statue Minnesota, cow. Minnesota State Fair, though, they carve the Princess K of the Milky Way into butter. But that's a different thing. Um, 
but yeah, so this became a huge point of contention. Erica Smith, um, who's a senator from Northampton County, a Democrat, uh, she's really been concerned about this because she was looking for the data to back up that consumers are indeed confused about this label. And Troxler couldn't give her this hard data. He's like, well, just, you know, from my informal surveys of people and hearing other, you know, hearing from other agriculture officials, it's, it's confusing. But if this passes, North Carolina would be the the first state in the 50 states to have this rule. Um, other countries like Canada and parts of the European Union have this rule. Um, but it's been crazy. All this time I thought you got almond and coconut milk by just massaging the coconuts and so, for a long time. No, no, honey, no. Um, <laughs> It's, it's, if you've ever made your own almond milk, it's a huge process. You have to get, like, cheesecloth and all that. And I know this because my mom likes to make her own milks. Um, so it's it's complicated. <laughs> you cannot milk an almond, Andy. Uh, <laughs> you might be able to milk a cat, but you can't milk an almond. <laughs> but it has to be a hooved mammal, so cat milk is out well, under no, this. Well, no, the big joke on Twitter is what would we label breast milk, but we're not selling breast milk in grocery stores, so. I hope not, yeah. But aren't there, like, breast milk exchanges? Isn't that a thing that some mothers use? I don't Maybe know. Carver. Mm. <laughs> As a mother, I would. Uh, I'm not a mother. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> no. <news>. Wait. <laughs> Wait, you're very delete here. No. I'm not a mother, so I don't know about these. Oh, my God. Um. <laughs> Moving on. Jordan, what else are we going to talk about? Moving <laughs> on. Um, I think that's a good note to end it on. And I'm really glad that we uh, did this in the main body of the show and not uh, confining it to a small conversation so in rude. Headliner of the Week. Uh, uh, so um, let's take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, It had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? Welcome back. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, headliner of the week, uh, where we decide who the uh, most important person, place, or thing in this week's news is. Uh, now it, it won't be uh, it won't be cow's milk or almond milk or any hooved animal's milk or any other kind of milk. Uh, but Lauren, we'll start with you anyway. Uh, who's your headliner of the week? Uh, so my headliner of the week is actually a bill that was rolled out last week that would update the harassment policies or the workplace harassment policies in the General Assembly. Um, Senator Erica Smith, a Democrat from Northampton County, along with a couple of other women in the House and the Senate, rolled out a bill that would um, allow for a new confidential reporting process for all workplace harassment, not just sexual harassment. Um, and she really highlighted the, you know, how hard it is to report workplace harassment in this in this building. Um, right now, there's two different processes depending on who you report to. So really, 
you could be reporting your harassment at some point to Senator Phil Berger or House Speaker Tim Moore. Um, and that can be really hard for a lot of um, victims of harassment because at some point, at, you know, in some cases, they could be reporting, you know, caucus members. They could be reporting, you know, high-powered Republicans, high-powered Democrats. Uh, and so going to, you know, the House Speaker or the Senate leader can be problematic and very scary. So this new process that they laid out, um, you'd have one central reporting person in HR you can go to that person and report it. Then that person would be able to recommend to the Legislative Services Commission and Ethics Commission to, you know, some sanctions if there ever need to be. And it's an investigative, it's an investigatory um, process. Um, and, it, and it's a better process than what the current one is, um, according to Erica Smith. Because um, right now it can take, you know, 20 days up to 100 days to, for the process to move through. Um, and that's, you know, you're re-victimizing people over and over again when you have to tell that story. So headliner of the week will be um, updated harassment policies. If this bill gets passed, it's unclear if it will. It's sitting in committee right now. But Okay. Updated, potentially updated harassment policies at the legislature. Will Dorn, who's your headliner of the week? I've got to go with um, wife swapping prosecutors. Um, <laughs> it is a really unfortunate title uh, given to these uh, two former DAs from North Carolina who are under investigation for hiring each other's wives, and every time it gets written about, they get called the wife swapping prosecutors, which I feel like is maybe a little bit of a <laughs> clickbait or something. Uh, it's a what do you think? What do you think people might think? Well. <laughs> Um, all they have been accused of is uh, hiring each other's wives in their offices and then basically allowing the wives to collect a salary but not really do any actual work. And apparently it got so bad that eventually their staffs turned them in. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's pretty rare that you see, you know, uh, someone as powerful as an elected DA get uh, snitched on by the, the county clerk or the paralegals or whoever whoever it was that turned him in. Um, but now uh, one of them is uh, currently on trial and uh, is representing himself. Um, and there's a saying in, or I guess a joke in the in the legal world that a pro se defendant has a fool for an attorney. Um, and I don't know if he's ever heard that joke or not. But leave, it, leave it to you to make a joke with Latin in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I've got a theme. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm sure that joke is, is getting told a lot behind his back in addition to other jokes um but uh we've been following that trial and uh it's it's really just kind of your your garden variety small town corruption sort of thing and you know makes you wonder how often this goes on you know outside of these two tiny little counties up in you know kind of central northern north carolina yeah well it was interesting that you know he defended himself and he said that uh he had formerly just hired his own wife you know and uh they uh, you know that judges never objected to that and no one ever objected he would introduce his assistant as his wife and you know there was never any problem with it well you know i wrote another story about this week there's actually a bill advancing in the legislature right now that would let school superintendents hire their spouses. That's currently illegal uh, because of obvious nepotism and ethics concerns. Um, but um, some legislators from small rural counties want to overturn that rule because uh, I guess there's a lot of times when superintendents are just married to a teacher 
um, in these little counties and then, you know, get into, like, legal trouble for that. Um, and, of course, at the legislature, that's totally normal. But a lot of these uh, legislators use their spouses or other family members as their uh, sole legislative assistant. So they're essentially, you know, getting two paychecks plus the benefit of uh, your wife is up here to keep an eye on you. Has anybody ever hired a, the other guy's wife? I think there may have been a f- – there might have been one. I don't – I, I, I don't know. Personally, I know that there's a mother-in-law a mother employed by a lawmaker, but I don't know if there's been like a, oh, you're my bestie in the legislature. Can I hire your wife and then you hire my wife? I haven't seen that yet. If anyone can, you know, let us know, let me know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple at the legislature wasn't getting along, so they said, well... It's not working out for me to have you, honey, as my legislative assistant. So if I can, no, we still need you the paycheck. Well, yeah. Well, one of the new one of the new family members that works here is Joe John Jr., son of Representative Joe John, legislative aide to Joe John. So is he, yeah. does he like Joe John J cubed or something? I kind of have a good family nickname for that. I, I don't know. I haven't asked. Monday I will. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Wife-swapping prosecutors, not quite as salacious as it sounds, but still in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Uh, Colin Campbell, who's your Headliner of the Week? Well, I'm going with a story that is as salacious as it sounds, if not more so. Uh, And I'm picking for my Headliner, State Representative Bob Steinberg, a Republican from Edenton. Uh, He had uh, quite some colorful commentary in a committee meeting today about a bill involving some uh, increased prison security measures, a sort of bill that's uh, come out of the prison system. They're trying to beef up some of the rules and laws that are in place that allow them to, to keep their inmates under control. Uh, and Steinberg was interested in a provision in here that uh, involves uh, inmates who uh, pleasure themselves in front of guards in a, uh, I guess, a sort of threatening way. Uh, so Steinberg, upon reading this bill, says in the committee meeting, masturbation is now a class F felony. God help a lot of the people in this room if that's the case, to which there was a lot of awkward laughter. Um, he, he later followed up by saying that uh, he was a little concerned about the bill um, because he felt that uh, inmates, quote, have urges like the rest of us have or used to have. Um, so uh, they used to have. Yeah. There's way, way more that we wanted to know about certain members of the legislature. Uh, but anyway, so Steinberg's concerns ended up being taken into account in this bill. There was a fairly lengthy discussion uh, about how to avoid slapping an extra decade in prison for someone who uh, perhaps uh, was uh, doing things under their covers in bed at night when no one could see versus the situation that was uh, quite a very serious situation for uh, prison guards in the state, particularly female prison guards. There was one that uh, a woman who spoke and described situations where she would be making her rounds. There would be a an inmate uh, trying to essentially uh, play a power game with the uh, guards by um, masturbating on top of their bed in front of someone in their general direction. There's uh, This bill also includes a provision about slinging bodily fluids, which apparently is a, a problem that um, corrections facilities have uh, facing officers. This woman said uh, something effective. Uh, she's sexually assaulted or sexually harassed every single day she came to work uh, while she was working in the state prison system. So this is kind of what that's intended to get out of, um, get at. But there was a, a amendment filed to make sure that um, this was aimed at people who are deliberately exposing themselves to uh, another individual as opposed to anything that happens in private. Uh, so that bill uh, now goes to the House floor, and um, hopefully when it gets to the House floor, there won't be a two-hour debate about um, sexual habits, which was what we experienced in committee today. I really hope hopefully not. They, they won't beat it to death. <sighs> Andy. <laughs> what? 
Well, it could be worse. We could be talking about fickle pickles again. <laughs> uh, all right, Andy, you're penalized. You don't get to do a headliner. <laughs> so, uh, no, I guess you get to do one. Yeah. All right. And we should I say assume... before we, even though it's kind of a, a, a goofy subject, we should say that there, a lot of people, as Andy's story pointed out, uh, you know, tie all this, uh, some of this behavior in prisons to people with mental illness and worry about the uh, the effect that uh, some of these uh, crackdowns on uh, inmate behavior would would have. Um, That's right. So. In, in all seriousness, you know, mental health advocates say that oftentimes prison exacerbates mental illness, and so people sort of lose um, control over their impulses. And so, in those cases, it's uh, they argue unfair to punish um, people who may not know what they're doing. So. All right. That's that. Andy Spade. That's for my headline. headliner of the week. Let me take you back to the weekend where uh, a woman, a legislator who uh, many of us know and probably some of our listeners, uh, Trudy Wade is my headliner. Uh, last, late last week, either Friday or Saturday, I can't remember which, a photo appeared on Google, the main page for Google. Like her bio, when you Google Trudy Wade, the photo that came up included the word bigot underneath it. And so pe- people notice this, and re- uh, they wrote about it. And then uh, when that happened, Drudge, Matt Drudge, conservative blogger, ag- news aggregator, uh, sort of put that on his site and uh, called out Google. And then they apolog- They had to issue an apology for uh, what they said was using a photo submitted by a... Uh, it was I, like a student blog. So- something like that, yeah. Um, I'm pulling it up. Um, yeah, they described it as a student blogger. I think ultimately it was uh, something that posted back in 2012, oddly enough, by an, an LGBT advocate uh, blogger uh, who I think was concerned about her opposition to same-sex marriage back when she was on the Greensboro City Council. That's right. And Google <coughs> removed – it was Friday. Google rem- later removed the photo um, after Drudge brought national attention to it. Fox News picked it up. Other places picked it up. Um, and then uh, – Today, on the House floor, our Senate floor, mm-hmm. she, uh, Senator Wade said that, uh, I don't believe anything on Google anymore. So, yeah, Trudy yeah. Wade, non-believer of anything on Google, is uh, my headliner of the week. I was just going to say, that was in the middle of debate about something. I don't remember what she was Googling, but she was discussing... She doesn't Google anymore. She doesn't trust anything. Yeah, she, she put out a statement ding, saying she didn't use her. She thought that Google's apology rang hollow because they didn't initially take the photo down after her staff uh, inquired about it, and that they, uh, I think she even said in her statement that she that it wasn't taken down after I tweeted about it because uh, we we noticed this last week and I tweeted something. I I don't know that Google can be at fault for not following everything I tweet, uh, but that was something a concern that uh, Senator Wade had voiced. So she doesn't Google anymore, and neither do inmates. <laughs> okay. Shut it down. <laughs> I thought somebody else would have to get something else in about that. Uh, so uh, I'm just going to steer completely clear of uh, this whole Bob Steinberg uh, uh, deal here and, and uh, not risk saying anything that I'll regret. So, uh, <laughs> so that one's out. Uh, so I think I'm going to go with the uh, wife-swapping DAs, um, and uh, so that makes Will Dorn our winner this week. And uh, make sure you catch us next week on a hopefully more PG-rated Domecast. cast.
You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.